one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor for China and Global Affairs at The New Statesman. And you're listening to The New Statesman podcast. Today, I'm joined by Quinn Slobodian, professor of history at Wellesley College and the author of Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals and the Dream of a World Without Democracy. Quinn, you've written a fascinating and, I have to say, frankly, disturbing piece for the New Statesman magazine on the rise of the new tech right and how the cult of IQ became a toxic ideology in Silicon Valley and beyond. All very optimistic stuff. Thanks for that. Um, You begin this piece by exploring the concept of meritocracy and its evolution since the 1950s. And I think we should start there by just kind of defining these terms and introducing this subject. Could you Give us a sense of what we're talking about when we talk about this idea of meritocracy and how have the implications of that concept changed since the 1950s where you start this piece? Sure. Well, the term actually was coined by a labor politician and sociologist, Michael Young, in a kind of speculative science fiction novel, interestingly enough, that he wrote that was published in 1958. And in the novel, the premise is that the way that the elite would be selected in the future would not be through their connections or their kind of class status, but through their ability. And their intelligence, above all, would be the kind of criteria that people um, were selected by to become basically the governing class. So the, the book sets up this fascinating situation where you get a kind of a sorting out of the population according to their intelligence and a seeming kind of perfection of a technocratic rule of society until in a kind of a twist ending, there's a revolt of a populist party led by women in this case that uh, overthrows the, the meritocratic elite and creates a new more kind of egalitarian system. So the term meritocracy now has entered, of course, our mainstream conversations, but still I think has this implication of the kind of the complement to a democracy where everyone has one vote is a kind of a selection of the governing class according to skill. And since then, there's been endless conversations about whether this is good, whether it's bad, whether it's actually happening, whether it's blocked, whether there are sort of unintended consequences of a system like this, as suggested by the novel itself. 
And the IQ conversation really sort of enters this larger meritocracy debate, I would say. And you have um, this term IQ fetishism um, to talk about this idea of IQ and sorting people into these sort of cognitive um, stratospheres. Where do you see that debate really start to come back to to prominence? So that, that the Michael Young book, I think, is, is in the 1950s. Where do you trace then the resurgence of these ideas more recently? Well, I mean, I think it's worth very briefly sort of remembering where the IQ thing came from. Originally, it was the IQ tests were introduced to sort of select an officer class and delegitimize people who were entering the armed forces who might not be able to, you know, reason well enough to be incorporated into more like high uh, responsibility pop positions. So it was originally intended to kind of do that sorting in terms of a military that was going to be fighting in the First World War in this case. It comes back in the 1950s and 60s, as you say, kind of as part of the shift to what was then for the first time being called a knowledge economy. So if you think about people not as primarily going into the mines or the factories or the battlefield, but doing things like white collar work, teaching, becoming lawyers, becoming stock traders, and so on. This was a kind of a new mandate for education. We're educating and finding talented people who can do these kind of mental tasks rather than physical tasks. So in the 60s, it really became a debate, especially in the UK, around streaming and whether or not you should create a universal education system and that the old model of sort of public schools was actually suppressing merit and keeping people who could be more talented out of the kind of ruling or governing class. So in the UK, that's really where the the debate picks up in the 60s. In the US, it's around somewhat dormant, but really takes off in the 1990s. And the signature sort of extraordinary uh, flag post there is the publication of this book called The Bell Curve by Charles Murray, who was a kind of libertarian think tanker, and Richard J. Hertenstein, who is a Harvard psychologist. They write this sort of 800-page dense social science treaty, and it becomes a bestseller. It sells 400,000 copies. It's on the New York Times bestseller list for months and months and months. And it reopens this debate about IQ specifically around the question of race and whether or not there are group differences in IQ, whether or not it's the case that groups defined as racial are somehow also defined by a kind of average, lower, or higher level of IQ. And most importantly, whether or not the kind of 1960s ideology, racial liberation and egalitarianism had kind of skewed the outcomes such that more talented people from high IQ racial groups in their mind, whites, East Asians, Ashkenazi Jews, were being sort of kept out of power kept out of meritocratic uplift in favor of lower IQ groups such as African Americans and Latinos. So it was an explosive topic that was, you know, extremely disputed by experts. The American Psychology Association published a huge refutation of the findings of the bell curve, but it opened a conversation that sort of hasn't gone away and this new tech right that the piece is built around needs to be seen as part of the kind of ongoing furore that opened up in the mid-1990s. One of the things that really struck me about reading this piece, and as you talked there about the bell curve, 
was how phenomenally popular that book was and how these ideas that we might like to think about as being kind of really on the fringes, really sort of like extreme theories were, were clearly palatable and interesting to, to like, you know, a, a large audience. I mean, is that still part of the dynamic around IQ fetishism, discussions of intelligence, this idea that there is some sort of hereditary aspect um, of, of, this, of this idea? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the IQ fetishism of the right wing of the kind of tech world in Silicon Valley would be almost to a person, and I almost said to a man, because we are talking about a conversation like really dominated almost exclusively by men for reasons that we maybe will talk about in a second, is that they would see intelligence as largely hereditary and genetically determined in a way that, as they understand it, the kind of quote unquote woke egalitarian ideology that we have as a legacy of the 1960s keeps on trying to suppress. Their chief complaint is, I would say, and why it was so explosive in the 90s and still is, it's kind of, it's got two sides. On the one hand, there's a kind of pushback against what they see as government overreach. So there's a feeling that especially affirmative action programs that try to put people from underrepresented groups kind of at the head of the queue or create quotas for minority or underrepresented groups are um, skewing the kind of the quality of people in occupations and the people who are rising to the top of government and and the corporate world. So there's a kind of anti-meritocratic, as they see it, thrust to the policies that came out of the 1960s. Second, because they, in many cases, feel like there are some people that, let's say, left-hand side of the bell curve of the IQ distribution, who are kind of not salvageable as productive members of society, and who indeed do need to be kind of like warehoused or incarcerated, that this is kind of another part of the, what they see as like left-wing progressive ideology um, is, is repressing. So the fact that there are incorrigible parts of the population, and um, they do just need to be like sequestered from the rest of the community. Thirdly, the the question of immigration becomes really volatile here because the argument, if you believe as they do, that there are kind of group differences defined by racial groups in IQ, then if you're letting in people from groups that you understand to be low IQ, you see this as producing what they call a kind of downward pressure on overall intelligence or what they call a dysgenic rather than eugenic tendency. If groups with overall lower IQs, they see it, are having more children and are coming into the country in larger numbers, then a lot of these people on the tech right see this as kind of a secular trend towards, you know, dumbing down the United States, causing it to lose its edge economically, and causing a kind of a a perverse outcome where state policies lead to kind of uh, a worst population quality. So it's all, I mean, you know, it is really repellent uh, way of looking at humans, sort of sorting them into these airtight groups that, you know, every other scientist would say they don't belong in, that these sort of hard borders of racial difference are culturally constructed, they're arbitrary, they don't have the kind of solidity that people on the tech right or IQ fetishists attribute to them. And they critics say, and I would put myself in that group too, that this use of kind of social science rhetoric is a way to kind of reintroduce 
just plain old racism by the back door and to kind of legitimize it and give it the gloss of kind of academic rigor, where in fact it is just a reinforcement of pre-existing stereotypes. If we follow those beliefs through to their logical endpoint and the, the sort of the vision of what a society ordered by this idea of IQ would look like. I mean, where does that get us? What is the end state that these individuals believe should follow from, from this ordering of society? Well, interestingly enough, it's a little bit like the vision that Michael Young had of the of the future in the sense that you have a kind of hand-in-glove cooperation of the government with the scientific establishment that figures out who the highest achieving people are and then places them in kind of the positions of, of power or decision-making. It is sort of literally a eugenic policy in the sense that it's um, an enlightened government, enlightened by race science. The interesting thing about the tech right, and here I would include um, Nick Bostrom, who was at Oxford, who was a central philosopher of the effective altruism movement, Dominic Cummings, former advisor to Boris Johnson, and Richard Hanania, who's become a kind of sensation in the United States for the revelations of him writing pseudonymous alternative right tracts in the earlier 2000s. But for all three of these people, anyway, as I talk about in the piece, there was a real fascination about 15 years ago with China. The feeling was that China was taking seriously the idea of general intelligence. They were allowing briefly for kind of large-scale DNA gathering to create databases of a potential kind of future elite who could perhaps be culled out of the larger population and, I don't know, encouraged to reproduce, given special bonuses. I'm not sure what they saw as the end game. But the interesting thing about that was there was a kind of an envious look at a place like People's Republic of China for not having the kind of guardrails around, <laughs> um, uh, around intervention into reproduction, um, into the, the kind of the flouting of democratic egalitarianism that this would involve if you kind of genetically select out a specific class for um, improvement. But that's no coincidence. There's one country in the world that took seriously the limits to growth report in the 1970s about the need to curb population growth, and that was China. Um, the one-child policy showed that they were willing to make very drastic interventions into their own population for particular demographic outcomes. So there was, re there was some reason to, for these tech folks when they were still in their kind of China-philic phase in the early 2010s to look kind of longingly at a place that had more dictatorial, dictatorial kind of capacity to um, transform the behavior of its citizens. Coming up after the break, who are the key figures promoting and funding IQ fetishism today? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG.
I mean, they sound almost like there are echoes there in the attraction that sort of white white nationalist, white supremacists find in modern Russia under Putin, a sort of envy of um, if only we could structure our own society more along these lines, which is uh, yeah, pretty pretty chilling and disturbing. Um, I mean, you mentioned there that these ideas and this this revival of IQ fetishism is really dominated by men, and you talk in the article about you know specific in individuals who are really playing an outsized role in, in in funding and attempting to mainstream these ideas. I mean, who are the key figures to know about here and and to really be focusing on? Well, I mean, I think Charles Murray, who you know was the original co-author of that book, The Bell Curve in the 90s, continues to be active and continues to write books that are published on trade presses about the kind of the science of race and gender. Gender because the assumption of this group is that women have a lower uh, average IQ as a group than men, just as the racial kind of results helps to reinforce conservative and reactionary racial stereotypes. So this apparently scientific evidence is used to reinforce the idea that women's uh, role is more private and reproductive rather than active and public. The funder who's worked closely with Charles Murray, who I think is a good name to know, is Harlan Crow, which is a name right out of a sort of Cormac McCarthy novel, um, who was the heir to one of the United States' biggest real estate fortunes. His father was Trammell Crow, who was actually interestingly involved in the early stages with the revitalization of Canary Wharf. He, in my book, he shows up in a different context, which is, you know, talking about turning the Docklands into a financial center, as they end up doing. So Harlan Crow has been in the news recently also for giving all kinds of gifts and and unreported vacations and perks to Clarence Thomas, one of the members of the American Supreme Court, and is got his fingerprints in a lot of this stuff. So he's He's supported the creation of this this new sort of startup private educational institution called the University of Austin that promotes its its roots in what was called the intellectual dark web, you know, a few years ago, and promotes the investigation of quote unquote forbidden knowledge, which often means looking at the scientific reality of race and gender difference. The male factor also comes in through the influence of what's called evolutionary psychology, which is also very big in this world. The idea that we still have kind of an important part of our brains that are hardwired for our lives, you know, surviving on the savannah where the men went out and fought or hunted big game and the women um, tended the children and, you know, picked berries and so on. Uh, Again, also some very hackneyed, cliches about what early man's life was like, which then get reinforced with this idea that we still have those disproportionate levels of aggression in men and and propensity to care in women that we only kind of deny at our own risk. So interestingly, a lot of the stuff that's coming out of the tech right is about kind of deferring to science, either social science or human sciences or even life sciences as having the kind of the key to social organization in a way that they see the mainstream as sort of too quickly dismissing. There's a feeling that the idea that race is a social construct, gender is a social construct, 
reality as a social construct has become the kind of mainstream ideology of higher education and the Democratic Party and so on. And so they're pushing back against that and saying, no, in the end, we need to build politics and society on the bedrock of nature. And who knows about nature? Well, scientists know about nature. So let's turn to the science, which is interesting because in the, in the United States anyway, over the, in the Trump years, there was a big discourse about trusting the science, which was assumed to be kind of a progressive or you know center, center left position to take. But in fact, the right wing has been just as interested in trusting the science, perhaps more so. And they actually see it as a way to push back against ideas of human equality. For them, science preaches the lesson of difference and hierarchy and kind of incorrigibility and unameliorability, meaning that if you do listen to the science, you accept that there will always be more powerful groups and less powerful groups. And surprise, surprise, the contents of those groups is very similar to those that have defined you know, modern life for the last several centuries. Do these arguments take account of existing structural privilege? I mean, it strikes me one of the things listening to these these ideas is it really does help to justify a worldview where you deserve just through your own genes all the advantages that you as an already privileged member of society might might enjoy. I mean, how do these arguments engage with or or not um, the idea um, that that some people just start very far down down the road in terms of the the advantages and, and the systems and the the structural the structure of the society they're born into. There is that. I mean, in in America, the baseball metaphor that's used is being born on third base, right? And and only having one base to run to get home. There is some of that, but I think less than the way it kind of validates pre-existing class privilege is how it is inserted in this really specific and actually very strange world historical moment in on the American West Coast and Silicon Valley. So in this period from the outbreak of the global financial crisis in 2008, really until, let's say, the pandemic in 2020, you had kind of a decade plus where interest rates were so low, investor uh, interest was so high that you know people with the slen- most slender ideas of their own could arrive in Silicon Valley and Palo Alto area and start shopping around their idea of what they wanted to do and suddenly have you know tens of millions of dollars of valuation on their um, you know, harebrained idea, just on the premise that if it paid out, it could make the venture capitalists who were behind it, you know, 10 times more money, 100 times more money. So um, it was worth it for them to put large amounts of money on every little bet. What I think that did was it produced this sort of illusion of genius, right? It produced this sense on the behalf of the often very young people, usually young men who were part of that world, that they were like uniquely endowed with some kind of special insight that nobody else could have thought about the idea of making, you know, like Uber for skateboards. So they must have something that is special. And every time someone criticized them and said, you know, you're just on the froth of like a tech bubble or your idea is dumb, then they would just say, you're resentful of my genius. My genius is actually something that is inherent to me and all my my friends here. So there was uh, the specifically kind of like the individualism of the tech bubble, I think, produced the sense of being decontextualized as if you didn't actually 
you know, arrive to where you were through collaboration, through the kind of work of a collective, through, let's say, building a workforce who actually needed to produce the object. It was just a person and an idea. So I think that idea of the lone genius was both kind of reinforced and given reinforcement by these notions of kind of inbuilt hereditary intelligence that then produced a kind of a social scientific scaffolding and a kind of armor for people to hold up against themselves whenever they were criticized from outside. And this you can, I mean, you can really just see this on the blogs and kind of listservs that were popular in the in that period, the 2010s. I mentioned some of them in the piece, Less Wrong, um, Slate Star Codex. They repeat over and over this feeling of a kind of small embattled genius minority who everyone else is resentful of and only wants to dispossess because they were um, not endowed with special sort of in, inbuilt and inborn advantages cognitively that these people were born in. The fact that it's all happening online too, right? I mean, you can be a 110 pound weakling and yet be like a titan, right? Either, let's be honest, in the video game that you play or in the valuation of the company that you have helped to found. So I think it was a perfect storm for this idea of kind of the genetic genius that as it fades, you can predictably see people sort of clawing to try to keep that position. But high interest rates are a hard uh, dragon to fight in any circumstance. One thing that strikes me is a lot of these individuals are now at the forefront of these really important emerging technologies like AI, which are going to play a very important role in our future. How do these kind of beliefs influence where they see those technologies going? I mean, you you end your piece with quite a dystopian um, vision of how this technology could be used in all of our features in a society ordered in terms of intelligence. Yeah. So I end with this indeed kind of chilling vision from this person named Curtis Yarvin, who blogged under the name Mencius Moldbug, who is perfect for the story because he was kind of plucked out of his high school as a youngster to buy a program that was out searching for high IQ individuals. It was set up by the psychologist named Julian Stanley, specifically as a counterweight to what he saw as the leveling quality of great society programs. So Yarvin really drank the Kool-Aid quite early is a kind of like, you have to see him as kind of a Jonathan Swift type, like satirist at times. So I think he can be taken at his word in a way he's certainly not always meaning to, but he's symptomatic. And one of the interesting kind of chilling things he suggests is like, once work is manual labor is automated um, and AI has become advanced enough to take over most human tasks, we'll be left with this problem of surplus populations. So his argument is you just sort of um, more or less incarcerate people in their homes, but then give them very advanced kind of virtual reality interfaces that they can play on all day long and thereby like pacify them and, um, you know, reduce the chance of a popular revolt of the kind that ends Michael Young's 1958 novel. So there is definitely an undercurrent of this IQ talk in the AI conversation in the sense that many of these these same members of the kind of tech right see themselves as geniuses. Therefore, the only thing that they fear is something that could be smarter than them, which ergo, which like by definition must not be human because they're the smartest humans. So it might be something, however, that they could program. So if they could pre- create artificial intelligence 
through their application of their own intelligence, augment it with, you know, the capabilities of the world's best, you know, processors and chips and so on, then you're in a territory of what is often called like the singularity. And there's, I think, two things that I would say about that, you know, as we probably as we wind up, like one is, I think that the idea of AI as, you know, the takeover of the killer robots is very easy to dismiss, and I tend to dismiss it myself. But the idea of AI taking over the very kind of white-collar jobs that are essential to the knowledge economy from the 1960s to the present is much easier to imagine, right? I think a lot of people do have kind of bullshit jobs, as David Graeber would say, that are just kind of making bad PowerPoints, writing silly presentations, writing up grants and reports that actually AI could probably do pretty well or almost as well as people do. So the question then about what we can do with our society once those kind of automatable tasks have been taken over is one where I think more than ever, the qualities that are not measured in IQ tests are necessary. Because I think IQ tests indeed sort of measure the kind of things that AIs can be good at, the kind of spatial reasoning and sequential reasoning. So the creativity that we will need to figure out a world once we've automated those things is one where this fixation on IQ won't be of much help anymore. Well, on that thoroughly chilling note, um, but with it with it with a hint of optimism, I, I think doing my the, best. Yeah, end there. Let me say, Quinn Silvodian, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and thank you for listening. You can read Quinn's full piece, The Rise of the New Tech Right, via the link in the show notes. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Katie Stallard, and Quinn Silvodian. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. You can also watch video from this podcast on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for The New Statesman. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes.